0: Hello, and welcome back to the Bioinformatics Chat. This is Roman. Uh, It's been one and a half years since I released the last episode, and this long break wasn't intentional. I actually recorded three episodes in February 2022, but I didn't get to release them because of the uh, large scale attack on my country by Russia. And uh, shortly after I enlisted in the army in the National Guard of Ukraine, and I definitely couldn't imagine myself doing podcasting, especially about bioinformatics In the middle of the war. But it's been one and a half years, and this war could last for another one and a half or five or ten years. No one knows. And I decided to return to podcasting. I'm fortunate enough to be able to do this. I'm not taking part in the actual fighting. Not on the front lines, I was spending my time in front of the computer doing more of an sort of intellectual work, and i really I really missed this. I missed talking to my guests. I missed hearing back from you all, from the audience. But I also want to use this podcast to talk to you about Ukraine to talk to you about our war and what we're going through. And I guess the first thing I want to say is thank you. Most of you come from the countries that actively support Ukraine, that help us survive, and and without this help, we wouldn't probably survive. And I know that it comes at a cost to you, so thank you. And please keep urging your governments and supporting your governments in their support of Ukraine. I also want to make it a tradition on this podcast to commemorate the enormous number of people, both Ukrainians and foreigners, military and civilian, who are no longer with us because of the actions of the Russian Federation and its people. So please join me for this moment of silence. Slavo and now I present you the conversation that I had with Pedro Biltrao in February 2022. Hey, welcome to the Bioinformatics chat. Uh, this is the first episode of what I hope will be a series of several episodes where we will be talking about AlphaFold, and not from the developer perspective as we usually do, but actually from the user perspective, from the perspective of uh, biologists who think about what useful conclusions they can draw from AlphaFold, and in in case you don't know or don't remember, AlphaFold is this um, protein folding software that is uh, better than anything we've seen before. And today, my guest is Pedro Beltrão, who is an associate professor at ETH Zurich. Pedro, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. Okay, so I think a good point to start would be if you could describe your background as a scientist and how you first learned, how you first found out about AlphaFold.
1: Sure. So, um, so I was originally trained as biochemist uh, for my degree and then moved into bioinformatics for a PhD while well, I was at uh, EMBL in Heidelberg. And then this is where I, together by, with uh, Luis Serrano's group, uh, I learned how to do a bit of structural bioinformatics. Um, and I, I won't sort of describe the, the rest of the career, but you know my research group um, now is interested in understanding how mutations end up causing changes in phenotypes. And so understanding protein structures and how proteins interact physically is, is a very important point in that. So that allows us to understand how a mutation may change how a protein works, for example. So, that, so at, yeah, AlphaFold, uh, I think it was the news. Of course, everybody ended up, uh, many, many scientists from a wide diversity of fields have, have seen the news of how exciting those developments were. And so, of course, it was announced with that casp where a lot of people would uh, have seen the progress, but hadn't seen the evidence. Where you wouldn't be able to uh, use it or even make sure that what they claim uh, was there was, was really there. So then uh, middle of July uh, last year, right? So that, that was when the papers were, were published and, and they released uh, the structures and the capacity to, so the codes and the capacity to, to do new predictions. Now, I think a lot of people, including ourselves, were extremely excited. You know, a lot of people in the group were extremely
0: excited and this is where um, we started doing some work on this. So is that open? So I, I assume it's not open. Sorry. So do you have to like, buy a license or ask for a license? Or wh- how does that work?
1: No, no. They were, I should say they were you know, extremely, uh, very positively and open about everything. So in fact, the first release, uh, uh, the code is available. And, and what, uh, what was there is that you could use it academically quite freely. The weights of the network, so this gets into some details, but initially the nature of the network were not available for commercial applications. But in principle, anything that you'd predict with it uh, would be free for commercial applications. And then more recently, because uh, you know, still companies were quite uh, anxious about that aspect of it, they now also made... Uh, the, these weights of the networks are also now available for use as, as, uh, as commercial entities as well. Mm-hmm. So now you are completely free to use it and reuse it and sort of take the code and do whatever you want with it.
0: So you mentioned the the, the casp, the, this uh, sort of protein folding prediction contest. May, maybe let's talk a little bit about that. Can, can you describe how it works?
1: Uh, sure. I, I never participated in CAS myself. And, and so, but essentially the, idea, the general idea is that uh, there will be experimental studies done to re- to resolve, to find out what the structure of a protein is. And, and these are given blind to people who develop computational methods to make the predictions. So essentially the idea is, uh, you know that there's going to be a release of a new experimental data set that has the structures of these proteins. Uh, we don't, You don't know the solution, obviously. And then uh, uh, periodically, there's this competition that people that develop the methods can uh, compete. So they, they submit a solution based on their predictions. And then uh, you see the result of the, of the competition, essentially. So it, it's divided off into different difficulty levels and, and different tasks. Uh, but essentially, that's, that's how we all got to find out that AlphaFold2 was uh, extremely good and much, much better than any previous attempt
0: right and and so for a long time, protein folding was the one one of the central problems that uh, we assumed if we solved that, right, like I don't know, may, maybe all humanity problems would be solved or something. <laughs> uh, but once now we have the software that performs extremely well it raises the follow-up questions like, what can we use this for? And that that reminds me a bit uh, of the story with the human genome, which also was hyped uh, when when the project was um, on its way. And um, people thought that once once we know the genome, we will be able to do all sorts of cool things with it. And maybe that didn't quite Live up to, to the hype. Is that uh, is that the same with the protein folding problem? Like n- now, now it's here, and people are uh, asking themselves, "What can we do with it?"
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think the analogy is, you know, some people might not like it the analogy. I I kind of like the analogy. And, and and to be, you know, to say that uh, sequencing the genome, the human genome, was not a huge advance uh, would be, I think, wrong. I mean. It, it may take time, maybe it takes just longer than you'd expect, but, but definitely it's an incredible advancement in science. And it, it powered everything from sort of JWAS analysis to many other studies that are still, you know, they're still not delivering. But that's, that's really the whole concept of how personalized medicine will work in the future. It would all be based off of, of sequencing the genome. So so yeah so the question is now we have this and of course you know there's still debate on whether the protein folding problem has been solved because to some extent you can get the structure of a protein but do you understand how the sequence turned into the structure that uh, so these computational models don't necessarily give you that understanding so there's still a debate on that it, did we solve that problem regardless of that debate the the, the, the interesting thing is we can have really high accuracy predictions for protein structures uh, based off of a sequence. There's a lot of caveats, but, but you know, by and large, we can get these extremely good predictions. And yes, what do we do with this? And to some extent, I think the, well, many in the scientific community in general, in a very broad sense, were caught off guard. Right. This is a competition that's been going on for a while, <laughs> and, and it's in the background and it's an interest to a specific set of people, and you don't expect to have these transformational jumps. Um, there, have been, there have been jumps in the past. I think this is also very important that there's there has been developments uh, prior to AlphaFold that were required for what AlphaFold did as well. That's very important to say. Uh, But yeah, so then the whole community is now asking, you know, what's the impact of this on many different levels.
0: Right. And um, you were one of the people who asked those questions and also like involved other people um, who asked those questions. And uh, together you published this um, uh, preprint, I think, or, or paper about evaluating AlphaFold and AlphaFold two, more specifically, from from a perspective from uh, of a u- of the user. Uh, so, can you talk about how that happened? Yeah, so, so it was it
1: was quite exciting. I think for me that was one of the cool things about this project is as many people were sharing online through Twitter their initial use cases. So now that we can do this, what what can I do with it? So, and that was for me one of the. Also, a very interesting development from the point of view of just meta science, how we do science, that we have these scientists on Twitter sharing initial ideas of what, what can I do with this, and so there are many of such of these cases, and and we were doing the same thing. And for example, we were looking at the impact of mutations on protein structures, or um, understanding where some pockets or things like this. And as we were sharing, other people were sharing. I just thought, why why don't we just put this all together? And so that was uh, towards the end of July. July tw- 21. The last year, right? I think that right. Was, uh, yeah. So, so then at the end of July, this is where this was happening. A lot of people were sharing things. And then through August, um, uh, I just started contacting people asking, why don't we just put this all together, basically? And so through, through essentially Twitter and Google Docs, uh, we managed to compile uh, contributions from around 34 scientists across 15 institutes uh, across the world, um, on, on these different use cases of having the, this capacity,
0: how did you coordinate? How did you, you know, come up with, with an agenda for this project?
1: In the end, it was quite light in terms of, of coordination. And I think there's, of course, different different models of how you can assemble a team and coordinate the team. But I think I don't. I think we may have ended up having one or two meetings that were essentially through through Zoom where it, it mattered that we all got together. Essentially, otherwise, because it was quite modular, every person was contributing, every group was contributing something uh, distinct. Uh, there was a the few points where they needed to have a interaction to combine different uh, different parts of the project. So it was all through email, Twitter, Google Docs, uh, and I ended up taking the the role of having to coordinate the pieces together. But but it was quite smooth, <laughs> I should say, and, and fast in terms of how how quickly. went from an idea to having a completed project manuscript ready to submit
0: okay so maybe let's start with the broad conclusions Uh, like what what did you all find Mm -hmm. so so
1: broadly speaking were some findings are that one of the questions was you know how much more do we get out of, of of structure based structure predictions or structural coverage uh, and, and you know, broadly speaking, we get something like twenty-five percent of proteomes for different proteomes, more coverage than we had before, with either experimental methods or previous high-confidence approaches. And, and then another uh, important broad message is that the there is these confidence metrics that you get when you use AlphaVol two. So not not only do you get a predictive structure but you have an estimation of how good the structure is at different points in the structure. And and this is critical. So oftentimes you have a predictor that gives you a solution, but doesn't necessarily tell you how confident it is on different aspects of that solution. And this is, I think, has been one of the amazing things about this development is you can then use these confidence metrics in your applications. So whatever is your application of choice, We've we've we found and I guess this is more or less expected, but if you can take those, if you take that into consideration, yeah, you can have a, a, of course a, a very very good outcome from your application. And and by and large, whenever we were comparing the these alpha two predictive structures with experimentally determined structures for our applications, uh, we generally see that that these are as good as these experimental structures if you consider these confidence metrics
0: uh when you say when you consider the confidence metrics do you mean you um exclude the predictions with low confidence or what, what do you mean exactly
1: so that will depend on on the exact application <laughs> but but yeah so for example uh if one, one application that we worked on was finding these uh regions that are pockets or cavities within the structure and and what we found is that uh, you could form what looked like a pocket uh, but through regions that are very poorly, or low confidence predictions. So then you could you could approach this solution in, now in two ways. Either you first remove these low confidence regions and you try to predict where the cavities are, or you just uh, score the predict cavities based off of these confidence metrics. So then there'll be other solutions, right? But uh, these are just ideas that, that we've proposed
0: and you mentioned something called coverage can you explain what what that is and how it's calculated why it's important
1: uh, sure 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 so so for each uh, species let's say the human it's human species yeah, we we have say very roughly uh, around 20,000 genes and you know there is complications to this but just say that's around 20,000 types of proteins with 20,000 sequences and so then we can more or less uh, know from from what has been experimentally determined already how many of these have, uh, we have an understanding of their three-dimensional shape. And so that uh, we would like to know what's the fraction of the total that we can cover, meaning for which we do have some experimental knowledge, or that we can, ha- before AlphaFold 2, we could already make a reasonable prediction, right? So then this is w- what we can say that, you know, based off of those numbers, the addition of these of this uh, approach gives us twenty five percent more than we had before.
0: Mm-hmm. So twenty five percent more sequences for which we now have an accurate model of the of the protein.
1: Yeah, it, it, it's more about the total sequences, like because you could have in some cases. Uh, so it, I should say twenty five percent is of high confidence. Uh, it, there's there's percent that we did not have any coverage. But this could also mean that, you know, for one protein X, we had an experimental structure that covered half of it. So it's not just the number of proteins, but the, the whole coverage of the whole protein sequence base.
0: Okay, interesting. And so for these new proteins that AlphaFold added, um, you know they're high, they are sort of accurate just by extrapolation. So y- you see how it performs on the proteins that you already know, and you assume that it knows what it's doing, and yes, right?
1: Absolutely. So, so, we take their estimation of confidence to say that, uh, so for a human in specific, there's about half of it that we already have a very good understanding of the structures, half that we don't, and, and AlphaFold, of course, makes predictions for everything there, and about half of that, so 25%, there's a high confidence prediction. There's, there's the wrinkle then that what alpha fold is not very confident about seems to be enriched for, for parts of proteins that don't, don't seem to have any structure to begin with. So there are parts of proteins that don't fold into a three-dimensional shape, but they are really, truly lacking structure. Mm-hmm. So in, in fact, this lack of confidence in the prediction is enriching for regions in the proteins that don't seem to have a three-dimensional shape.
0: Interesting, and so when you say a twenty five percent increase, do you mean like twenty five percentage point, or or by twenty five percent? And what? Sorry, what are th- yes, that's not very. I didn't. My my.
1: I was not very accurate in saying. So of the one hundred percent space, twenty five percent is added. So we go from fifty to seventy five percent.
0: Are those the numbers fifty to seventy five? Yes. Okay. Interesting.
1: So, it, but, but you know, there's a lot of this is really just approximation, right? So there's, of course, many of the previous predictions and even some of the previous experimental data sets could now be better with the AlphaFold predictions because uh, you know some some of those will be not very good resolution, uh, or the predictions are maybe not particularly good. So these are just rough numbers of saying what's the best case scenario of, of
0: improvement. And in your um, investigation. Did you limit yourself just to the human proteome or did you consider any other species as well?
1: No, we looked at all the other species that were included in the first release of the database, the, the EBI, the European Bioinformatics Institute database in partnership with DeepMind. Uh, for all of those that we also had uh, some previous approach uh, that that also covered them with experiment, with predicted structures in, in the Swiss model database that has uh, also Stores predictive structures using a different method.
0: Can you talk more about the database release?
1: Uh, yeah, so the the European when when the the AlphaFold two paper came out, there was a second uh, paper. There was uh, more about just in this case the human genome analysis of the DeepMind uh, structures, but there was a, at the same time a release, and I, I should get the numbers right, but it's something like eleven species, if I remember correctly where AlphaFold and, and, and so DeepMind and EBI released all the predictive structures for all the proteins in those species. That was before
0: you could run AlphaFold yourself, right?
1: It was simultaneously. So when they released the, 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 the capacity to run it, they, they also released these pre-computed. Uh, and of course, they continue to increase the, the pre-computed uh, structures. And they have the aim of covering essentially... "Quote unquote," all
0: proteins. So, is the, is the point in releasing this database is that running AlphaFold is computationally expensive, so it's more efficient exactly. to run run it once?
1: Absolutely, exactly. So, uh, and there are people who simply just don't have the, you know, won't be easy for them to to, to do that. And so, this you have precomputed uh, for full proteomes of,
0: of some species. Mm-hmm. And in your project, um, did you just use the database, or did you have an uh an opportunity, an excuse to run AlphaFold yourself?
1: Yeah, so for some cases, we did run as well. So uh, for cases, uh, for example, when we were comparing, when we were looking at mutational data, so where we know the impact of a mutation, there are some cases where this has been heavily studied for specific proteins for which we didn't have the, the predictive structure, and then we just, just ran ourselves. I, I should say that you know it was quite straightforward to get it to work. So I think they've done a great job in sharing share it in such a way that, that it's easy to set up.
0: And how computationally expensive is it? Can I run it on my laptop? You can.
1: You have to need a GPU. Uh, uh, you could in principle, yes. So, but there's also these uh, collab notebooks that you can use online. So you don't even you can have it from any computer.
0: And now let's talk about the areas that you personally participated in. Um, so my understanding, w- one of them was uh, pockets. So can you talk more about what pockets are and why uh, we care?
1: Yeah, so so we contributed in, in two areas. One that Amelie Stein uh, will probably talk more about, uh, which is a variant effect prediction. And then uh, as you were saying, we also contributed to this aspect of looking at structures that may have interesting cavities or pockets. And so this is of course important in, in different aspects. One um, there are proteins that carry out enzymatic functions. So for example, in order for your body to, to get energy, we, we eat food and then that food gets transformed in different ways. And so part of this process is you have proteins that are enzymes that transform uh, metabolites. Um, and so these, these have uh, pockets, cavities, where these small molecules go into and they get transformed. Uh, and and there's also important for drugs. So, so many drug targets require these cavities. So when, when, when pharmaceutical companies need to develop drugs, they need to know where these regions are in the proteins. So having the theoretical shape of a protein is essential in order to be able to study this. And, and there's a whole field of research dedicated to, to trying to find these regions and then to find whether there are specific drugs that could fit in these pockets and so on. So uh, one one question that we ask is whether you know to what extent are these predictive structures good for this purpose, and this is where we we found examples where the fact that AlphaFold two tries to predict the structure of the whole protein rather than specific regions of the protein, so the ones that it could also just in principle it could have only just give us the solution for the things where it was extremely confident about. And that's not what it does, right? It, it gives you the solution of everything, including regions for which it doesn't have confidence in.
0: But does it tell you confidence for the whole structure or for individual regions as well?
1: It gives you the confidence for individual positions mm-hmm. and also critically interesting, the relative orientation of the different positions, which uh, is sort of a complicated idea, but, but it's a very important uh, distinction. But, but yeah, so the end result is by doing this prediction for everything... And you can imagine the shape of something in 3D space. Uh, Some of those parts of that will be extremely confident, some of these will not. And just by the fact that it's trying to do everything, it will create pockets, cavities, in regions that has very low confidence in. And so we noticed many examples of this where the fact that uh, you could make predictions for cavities and it will find what looked like a very interesting cavity, but that it was just in a region of the protein for which uh, there was no confidence in. And so that, that, that's where we then uh, propose some ideas. You know, If you think in three-dimensional shape, you can already imagine ideas. So one idea would be that you take away all the regions that have low confidence and then you predict the pockets. Or you could so, do the predictions and then uh, come up with some scoring system that says, okay, this pocket is in a region of low confidence, therefore you shouldn't trust it. Uh, so, so this is what we proposed uh, as part of our contribution to this project.
0: So when uh, AlphaFold t- t- tells you about a low confidence regions, empirically, did you find that it clusters by sequence or, or by uh, you know 3D spatial organization? Is there really such a thing as like a spatial region of low confidence?
1: Yeah, yeah there will be spatial regions of low confidence, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, and also this is where it comes, this part about the relative orientation. It can even happen that you have Two regions are extremely well predicted, or has a lot of confidence in those predictions, but they are placed together, and just the fact that they are placed together in three-dimensional s- space, it creates in the region of interface uh, a pocket, a cavity, where in fact you know those two things there's no confidence in that relative orientation. So it's it's there's many layers to it, but but the, I think the 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 main message was that you could show we could show that in fact. If you take into account these confidence metrics, you could remove pockets that were unlikely to be real. So we could we could compare with previously known pockets. So we can we can suggest that we have an indication of whether this is working or not.
0: So before Alpha Fold, I assume people were also interested in, in finding pockets. Did that work off the just you know, predicted structures or experimentally known structures, or were there some algorithms that could predict pockets without, uh, without actually solving the whole protein folding problem?
1: You know, I think really the, the way to, it has been done is really based off of some idea what the three-dimensional shape is. Uh, and you could use it based off experimental structures, that's of course ideal. And you could then use it based off predictions. But, but then this is where the limitation was. Uh, so that, that that those predictions needed to be really good. And there were approaches to do it before, right? But it's just limited to specific uh, proteins. So, and that's, you know, the, the simple idea is if, if there's a another protein with a highly similar sequence, so then that for if there's a structure for that, you can more or less guess what the structure of your protein would be. And so that was a previous way of, of generating... Uh, very accurate models. So this just opens the doors to many other proteins. I think that's the idea. It, it, it also, because it can be run off of sequences, even if they don't have, even if, if, even if they're not similar at all to what you already know about protein structures, this really opens the door to many other species. And so out there, there's a whole set of bacteria that are being sequenced throughout the world in your guts, you know, inside the oceans. And they, they carry many interesting enzymes for biotechnology applications. So so this is now, I think, gonna be a very interesting area of research whereby mining these sequences that are being uh, deposited in these databases from all over in different areas of the world, you may find new interesting enzymes that do something that's very sort of practically useful for, for bio, for industry.
0: So to to summarize um, our discussion of pockets, I, I guess you know if, if the structure is accurate, then you can detect pockets. W- did you do that like by hand just by visual inspecting the proteins or is there established no, no, software no, no. that...
1: There, there, there is established algorithms so there's established software that, you know, again there's a whole area of research dedicated to that. So so there are, there are many different algorithms we, we don't develop those ourselves but but there are many people who are very good at this
0: and and this so was just using those on the predicted structures can can you give some names or what what are the uh, uh state of the art uh, pocket prediction algorithms you
1: know for example uh, coming from from vina tools there are very good uh, pocket predictors there as as an example
0: but again like how do you validate a pocket you still have to either trust that the output of alphafold is accurate right or compare to some existing experimental structure
1: yeah so the way we we looked at it was there are many cases where there is proteins for which there is uh, known pockets because um, the, the the structure was solved with a small molecule in it uh, and, and this is how we can say for sure that this is a a, a cavity that that is used by the protein or it's there's a drug that's targeting that so that's using a, that that set of proteins for which we know the truth we can compare uh whether we the pockets that are being predicted are are accurate so the other way we we did it uh, was to ask there's proteins for which there there are human proteins for which we know uh some of them are enzymes but there was no structure for this. But we know from other experiments that they should have enzymatic function. In, in order for a protein to have an enzymatic function, it almost always means that there must be a, a cavity there for a molecule to come in and being, being uh, uh, transformed. So you could, it's a, it's a more indirect way, but we could just take the structures of those and ask, can we predict which of these are enzymes just based off of these pocket predictions? And, and so, this is a completely uh, blind assessment because it does not, we don't rely on any protein for which there was a structure already solved. And so, this is how we also did it. So, if we make these predictions of pockets, can we rank which of these are likely to be enzymes and compare with the truth? And so, we can also, again, ask, you know, what, what if we do a bit of filtering on the pockets based off these confidence metrics? And again, that helps a little bit on, on making those predictions.
0: Very cool. And so, are there any metrics like performance metrics that uh, you can share
1: uh yeah so so those are on on the manuscript uh i would have to look at the details of the aucs but you know we got something like a 0.78 auc for the the prediction of whether an, an enzyme protein is an enzyme based off the pockets
0: and uh, another area that is covered by your manuscript that um, I was hoping you could talk about is protein interactions. Um, so how does AlphaFold or AlphaFold2 uh, predict protein interactions?
1: Yeah, so uh, it's, an, it's, it's an area that I think is, is one of the most exciting things that we've been working on. Um, and so we, in this manuscript, we didn't do this ourselves. This was the work by Arne Ellefson and o- of Ovnik. Of 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 Chinnikov, they were the ones that contributed. Uh, And then we, together with Arnie's group, followed up on on this in a separate manuscript that is also now in bioarchive, and it's in the review. But uh, this was a surprise. And again, I I go back to Twitter because, and I I won't remember the person who did it, but there there was a, a, a scientist that as soon as AlphaFold was released, they had a crazy idea, which is, you know, instead of predicting the structure of a single protein, if I have two proteins that I know f- are interacting, so they share a surface, an interface, and they form what we call a complex. So they, they are together having a function. Instead of just giving one, one protein sequence, what if I give the protein sequence maybe some spacer sequence and I, I add the other protein sequence next to it and just ask AlphaFold two to make a prediction. And, so, and, and that turns out to work in predicting the structure of the the two proteins together interacting together, compare with with experimental data, and that was like nobody was expecting this because the, the 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 DeepMind team did not train the model to do this. They didn't try to do it when they were showing the applications of it, and so then it was uh, there was a lot of excitement on. Well, not only can we predict the structure of individual proteins, but we can predict the structures of combinations of proteins interacting together. And, and if you just think about that, of course there's, if there's 20,000 human proteins, the the combinations of them are large. <laughs> uh, and if you can, solving the structures of the combinations is a much harder challenge, just purely from the, the numbers. Um, and so if it can also do that, is a much bigger advancement. Um, and so in this manuscript, uh, uh, Arnie and Sergey they showcase examples of of just using it on predicting structures of things that we already know to interact from experiments. Uh, So for which we have the experimental structure. And they just could show that, you know, it was much, much better than than previous approaches where previous approach would be imagining that if we had already the structure of the individual proteins, uh, we can just ask whether... Whether we can make the prediction of the of the structure of the two to combine the two interacting, which is called docking, which is a different idea somewhat together, but but then uh, AlphaFold does much better than than this. And maybe I just should at least uh, give you the numbers for uh, for for this. Uh, if I can find out the exact number, so so in what we quote, and this is work from Alex uh, Arne's group, is uh, using a previous approach, you'd get something like 7% of the pairs, of the structure of the pairs correct, whether with this new approach, uh, it it increases to something like 30% of them being correct. And I should say, since this um, Arne's group has has done work where they show that uh, this can be further improved to something like 40 to 50% correct,
0: and when you say the previous approach, how did that work previously? Did they also like uh, try to predict the structure of the combined sequence?
1: No, it's, a, it's slightly different. So for that, and that's a sort of a negative on that, is that you require already the structure of the two proteins individually. Mm-hmm. And then you ask, is there a, a reasonable way by which you, these two can interact together? So there were many prediction approaches trying to do that. Uh, and you can imagine, you know, the in order for two proteins to physically interact together, there has to be something about the shape of those proteins at that interface. And so, you know, whether you can make that prediction of of, of the, the place where these two things could be interacting together, and and those previous approaches were known to be very
0: error prone, so not very good. So even when the individual structures are very accurate, it's still hard to predict whether they will um, combine together. Exactly.
1: It would be very hard. Even if you know that they even if you know two things. One, you know very confidently the, the structures of the two individual proteins separately, and you know for a fact that they should they should have a, an interface together. Uh, even in knowing that it's extremely hard. So as in this test case example that Arnis group has run, about seven percent of those you get the correct solution correct solution for the for the pair together. So it's a difficult problem and was a uh, not solved in any way, <laughs> and so when when now you don't even have the structures, so you predict the structures of the two proteins and the structure of the complex of the of the two them together, you get on the yard of about thirty to fifty percent correct, which is a huge game, really fantastic game, very cool and and so the other point of that is you not only can you do that but you can rank them so you know more or less you have a way of at least uh, quantitatively ranking the solutions. And so if you set a threshold, you can get even higher. You can get something like 80% correct, but then you lose some along the way.
0: Does this include both the permanent complexes that proteins uh, form as well as like temporary ones where they just interact for a short period of time?
1: Yeah, so so this gets it more a bit into the... So that there's um, other work by Norman Davies' group uh, where they looked also at interactions between what we, we call, say, a globular region, so a, a region of a protein that's that has a very well defined three dimensional shape, and another protein that interacts via what we call an unstructured region, or short peptide, a small region that doesn't really have like a, a very well defined three dimensional shape. So these tend to be, as you say, less less permanent, more transient, and you know, and and there was some. Um, efforts to benchmark this. In in our community study here, in this preprint, it wasn't really like a benchmark, so it wasn't done uh, very systematically. It was some example cases that uh, that they looked at. And in those example cases, that seemed to be very promising as well. But I should say, I think that this, this, these types of interactions, these three interactions are, of course, much harder to model. And even biologically speaking, it's bound to be the case because essentially they are not as strong. So the binding affinity between them is lower than these more permanent uh, complexes. So of course it also makes sense that they're just harder to predict.
0: And so far we talked about just pairwise interactions. Uh, What about like uh, more um, complex complexes, which which, uh, contain more than uh, two uh, proteins?
1: Yeah. So, so many of these attempts that, uh, not us, but many, many people have been uh, trying with AlphaFold2, is you can have the predicted structure of two proteins interacting together. But many, uh, many complexes inside the cell have more subunits where they have more proteins in them. And that could range from, you know, two to tens of, of proteins all together, forming very complicated and large three-dimensional shapes. And, and so you can imagine them as very machines, you know, microscopic atomic machines. Uh, and you need all these proteins together in order to create these functions. And so, uh, experimentally, there's been a lot of work in trying to uh, solve the structures of these large machines. And, and there's been interesting developments in experimental approaches, cryo-EM specifically. But then, the question is, can we use alphafold to not just to predict these pairwise interactions, the structures of these pairwise interactions, but just bigger assemblies? And and there is a limitation on the computational side, essentially the larger the sequences, which means of course, if you try to predict the structures of multiple proteins together, you would just require more and more uh, GPU capacity and memory. And and this is where it becomes quite tricky potentially to, to make those predictions directly. And so the other potential venue or direction is, let's just say you predict all possible pairs, and you know that the complex has 10 proteins, you make the prediction for all possible pairs, and then you need to assemble the puzzle. Let's say you you just have three, right? And you you predict the possible pairs between those three. And then there'll be common subunits, common proteins, right? So in principle, you could simply overlay the common proteins and you build a bigger entity, a bigger complex. But some of those solutions will be correct, some of them are wrong, and you have some confidence metrics that you could probably derive. So it's a bit like a puzzle. Um, and in principle, there, there is there is definitely a, an area of re- sort of direction of research into it. So how do you take all those predictions and then assemble the puzzle and come up with a score that says what's the what's a viable solution? So there's gonna be multiple solutions to that puzzle? Uh, But then you just have to ask, you know, which of these is the the most interesting solution.
0: And uh, even ignoring the computational complexity if we were to predict, you know, many subunits as a single, you know, put them into a single sequence, there's also this issue of the order, right? Because there's more than one way to glue them together. Would that matter?
1: Yeah, no, exactly. Essentially, that's the challenge. Yeah, So, so, so it's not so much the order. So I think we actually tried that. I think we had... I don't have a good numbers for this, but we did try asking whether the order mattered if you if you if you asked A and B or or B and A, does that matter? And I think that that doesn't matter, but it's more the fact that if you have four things, four proteins, then there's multiple different ways by which they could of course be ra- arranged together in three d space and and the predictions will not always be congruent. so ideal the ideal scenario is you predict all possible pairs. And as you try to overlay them together, superimpose them together, there is no mismatch, and then they all all solutions of the pairs agree together, and then you're kind of more or less sure that you probably have the right thing. But we've tried this, so we've tried this uh, with some examples, and it's not the case. So, oftentimes you have solutions on the pairs that are not congruent, so that they don't agree with each other. And this is where you have to have a, a, a different way of doing it. So in, interestingly, we have one example. I don't remember off the top of my head, I think it's something like five proteins. And it forms a particular shape, but but it can be more or less open, that shape. So you, you imagine a bit like a horseshoe with, with five proteins along that horseshoe, and then it could be more or less open. Uh, and experimentally, that's true. So experimentally, there are structures solved where it's, it's a bit more open it's a bit more closed. And when we try to overlay our our pairs of prediction, you can come up with a solution that's a bit more open it's a bit more closed. So so it's interesting that that you could in principle also maybe have some indication of this confirmation
0: of variability, this flexibility. In that example, that's an interesting example, right, of a horseshoe, because if you were to predict those from a single glued sequence, if you put them in a different order than they occur in this horseshoe you wouldn't get the right result right no no it doesn't matter so in
1: fact uh, when we say we in the software uh, they, they more or less come in as coming in together in a specific order but then alpha fold uh, ignores a s- chunks of protein if they are separated enough so so meaning that it, the ordering by which you put it in sequence in principle does not affect in any way how they're placed in three-dimensional shape. Uh, and again, I, I think the, in really the, the solving of an individual protein is a difficult thing. The solving of these complexes is, is again, a, even a much harder challenge potentially. And it takes years of work often to, to do this. And the fact that you could in principle potentially for at least some of these, you could get a solution with a few hours on a machine. It's just, it's really just a, a completely crazy, revolutionary step.
0: Do you have any uh, speculations on what the like further downstream impact could be? So we're talking about, you know, applied problems, but still like very scientific and very, you know, maybe theoretical, but um, how far are we, do you think, from uh, maybe some medical applications? How, how important is this for uh, pharma? So I don't work in pharma. and never sure. have.
1: But I, so the, the two immediately things that come to mind immediately, when, and, and we've looked into it, is, is disease-causing mutations and drug pockets. So pockets where you can uh, uh, design a drug for. So these are two areas that are immediately, you get something that's very practical so there, there are many cases where, and, and we show some examples of this, where where you, by having the structure, you get a better understanding how a mutation causes a disease. And at the very least, it helps with diagnosis. And I think in the fields of, of rare diseases, it can often happen to be the case where you you, you have a disease, but you, you, it's very hard to get a diagnosis for these people. And now it's becoming more norm that you can at least sequence the, the protein sequence of the parents and the child, and you would ideally use that to get a diagnosis. And, and one of the issues is you may have a mutation in a protein in your, in your child, for example, and that has this disease, and, but you still don't understand if that mutation is very likely to cause a problem in the protein. So by having the three-dimensional structure of the protein, that helps a lot in that.
0: Yeah, that, that is very exciting.
1: And simply for drug development, I think, I'm, I'm assuming that all pharma companies are now using these structures. To find new potential targets for drug development.
0: Awesome. Um, anything else you'd like to mention before we wrap this up?
1: No. No. So, so I think it. It. There's many areas. Another area that I think is opened up by this, and I think uh, you're going to talk about this comparison of of shapes uh, that we that we looked at with, with Janine. And there's there's an area of research that has to do with the origin of life. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so but in. in it's very hard to do evolutionary studies that go very back and long in time, and one of the reasons why this is difficult is because in order to do that, the way typically you would do that is by comparing sequences, and those sequence comparisons uh, become very meaningless or very difficult to track for very uh, different species or so very further back in time. But protein structures uh, remain more identical. Than the sequences over long evolutionary periods of time, and so in fact, tracking back the evolution of proteins and evolution of life becomes more feasible if you have all structures of all species, which is going to be the case essentially with this. So, yes, yeah, so I think there is going to be a a nice resurgence of this type of research going on. So, using protein structures to study—it's always been there, but it was very limited. So, there was around you know thirty thousand. Proteins or, or whatever the number is for which you had some idea of structures, and this is now gonna to jump to whatever millions, hundreds, hundred millions for which you're gonna have a structure. There there is a, a limitation that again it, it's an area of research itself, which is uh, simply more on on the on the algorithms. So this this whole field of research that used protein structures computationally was used to dealing with, say. 30,000, 100,000. So now when you go for a million, 10 million, 100 million, you, you need other ways of doing the analysis. Because simply a lot of the methods don't scale to that level. So, yeah, so th- this is I think two areas of research that we don't do. I think the protein comparisons is something that we are interested in, but that these are just examples of areas that are opened up by, by AlphaFold too.
0: Cool. Well, uh, Pedro, thank you very much for this very interesting discussion.
1: Thank you.